the Making Sense of Life podcast number 47. According to J.K. Rowling, life is difficult and complicated and beyond anyone's total control. The humility to know that will enable you to survive its vicissitudes. The Making Sense of Life podcast will not only empower you to navigate through a fast-changing world, but also to grow in body, mind and spirit. Inward change precedes outer transformation. As the ancient Greek author Plutarch once said, what we achieve inwardly will change outer reality. This podcast is sponsored by Logos Medical Legal. Sunil also works privately with senior leaders. Go to drsunil.com forward slash corporate to find out more. Hello and welcome to the Making Sense of Life podcast with me, Sunil Raheja. We're continuing our conversation with Andy Parnham on his book, Lasting Happiness, In Search of Deeper Meaning and Fulfillment. Andy, it's great to have you back again. Thank you very much. So Andy would like to call us our happiness guru. So he's going to teach us all about happiness, and but in a, not in the superficial way that our world is um, so obsessed with, but in a way that really does make a difference in our lives. And this is such a fascinating subject that, um, Andy, you actually, you've, actually got the, you've actually got the record of the most, most number of podcasts that we've done on any oh. book or subject. So congratulations on that. So it's our fourth conversation. And because it's such an important subject, wherever you look, people are fascinated about the subject of happiness. And what Andy's very helpfully, helpfully done is unpack what that means. And if I want to be, if I want to be happy, Andy, just somebody says to you, I want to be happy. What, what would you say to them? Well, I think the simplest answer is have healthy relationships and have a sense of meaning and purpose in your life. And that's what, and so that's the sort of, if you like, the very quick summary, but obviously there's a lot more to it than that. Um, in the last podcast weeks, well, what does it mean to long for more and what happens even when we, we don't get what, um, what we want and how do we handle that and dealing with longings and yearnings. But today we're going to focus on, as you said, a very important part of happiness, which is healthy relationships. How do healthy relationships work and how do we repair and restore them when they go wrong? And if, if this also links with podcast number 25 about is there a difficult person in your life? But also, I encourage you to listen to three previous podcasts to get a really broad understanding of this. But let's think about let's talk about the subject of relationships. Relationships matter. Uh, there's a, a study by um, a famous uh, psychiatrist called Robert Waldinger that went over seventy five years and said the strongest predictor of good health is healthy relationships. So we know that healthy relationships matter. But let's let's start, Andy, by asking what makes for healthy relationships. Well, there's a long answer and a short answer. I'll give you the short one. Um, I think there are a number of things that actually quite countercultural. A lot that happens in our society is um, geared to the now and not the long term. And so unsurprisingly, a lot of our relationships suffer as a result. Um, But here's some... I've just got five, I think it is, um, suggestions, but I think they're principles, actually. Here's the first one. Uh, Prioritize people over things, meaning that in a culture that prizes material health and wealth, often it is our relationships that suffer. We can see that all around us and all the statistics. 
um, show it. And <laughs> the kind of simplest way of describing that is that when people uh, talk on their deathbeds sometimes, they don't say, oh, I wish I'd got more billions, I wish I'd got more university degrees, I wish I'd got better job or something like that. What do they say? Yeah. I wish I spent more time with my family. I wish I think I'd done things that I'd more, you know, things I'd always wanted to do. I wish I'd taken more risks about experiences, about relationships. Exactly. So, so when I say prioritize people over things, actually, that is quite a quite a countercultural thing to do. Secondly, um, I've written down here: become the kind of person that other people want to be with. Mm-hmm. So the focus is not so much on me and my needs, but Supposing I was another person in ongoing relationship with me, what would they find helpful? And actually, that that's not too difficult to imagine, isn't it? It's kind of generosity and kindness and uh, giving people space to be themselves, all that kind of thing. So kind of turning the table. Again, we live in a society which uses phrases like be yourself, don't let anybody else tell you what you should be like and be true to yourself. And there's truth in quite, in quite selfish kind of thing. We can interpret it in quite selfish ways. Oh. Yeah, I mean, there's truth in that, but it is a very self-focus, isn't it? And it turns out, and the research bears it out as well as our experience, that the more you focus on yourself and your own needs, the less open you are to other people's needs and so on. Anyway, so that's the second one. So the third one is find someone who you can trust to share yourself with is the other side of that coin, isn't it? So if you <laughs> if you are becoming, and that begs lots of questions, but if you're, be, you're becoming the kind of person that other people want to be with, and we know what that looks like, then it's not surprising, because it's a two-way street, th- that we're looking, of course we are, looking for that from other people as well. But if I'm not doing the work on myself, that one I said just now, then we're not going to be the kind of person that people want to spend the rest of their lives with. So that's the third thing. Uh, just a couple of other things. Here's a paradox. There's so many paradoxes in life, aren't there? And here's one. Um, the more you're willing to let go of a relationship, the more you're likely to get them. And I think that should be written in all school curricula that, you know, whether it's, I mean, I've got grown up um, children now. And I remember when our first child, um, she went to university and she went, you know, she started living away from home, etc. And I find that really hard. Mm-hmm. And and I had to learn as a parent that unless I was willing to let go on the inside of her, and I think most of us understand what that looks like, then she wouldn't want to come back. And as an adult to adult, we have to let go. And of course, it's true of friendships as well. You know, the kind of people that are very possessive and needy and need you and they drive people away. Yes. And it's really more about when I'm possessive and needy, it's really more about me than, than about the, the other person. Same idea, isn't it? Yeah. Same idea. And, and the fifth one? Just the last one, yeah. Mm. Um, is not just on interpersonal relationships. It's interesting that when you read articles on um, your rela- your relationships, it's usually your relationship. In other words, a kind of romantic relationship and a very personal, interpersonal, one-to-one. And, of course, that's the basis of a lot. But it isn't the only basis. Um, corporate relationships in an age when extended families are very much a thing of the past for many of us, and even nuclear families um, aren't as uh, extensive as they were. Um, my f- my fifth suggestion, principle, if you like, is um, finding a place and a people to belong to, mm-hmm. though it's not necessarily a top priority in our individualistic culture, 
nonetheless um, is one of the keys to well-being. So being part of a group of people where I feel I belong is deeply rooted into who we are. Yeah. So again, it, it's getting me to think outside of myself. Just give a quick summary of those five again to us, just, just, the, just the, 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 the headings for, for our listeners. Okay, prioritize people over things, become the kind of person that other people want to be with, um, find someone that you can trust to share yourself with, uh, be willing to let go, not simply grasping, uh, and find a place and a people to belong to. Yeah, so five very important things that we can do. But also, I think healthy relationships are also basic and intrinsic to what it means to be a human being. Yeah. yeah. And, and that comes very much out from, from the psychology as well as from brain research. Yeah. Perhaps you could give us a very simple understanding of that. Well, um, I've noticed that you've written down here, uh, Sunil, about psychology and brain research. You could add in <laughs> from our experience, because that's the starting point for m- most people, but it's 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 profound and interesting that these disciplines back it up. In fact, one very famous um, psychologist, professor of psychology in the States, his name is Ed Diener, and he's, he's, they call him Dr. Happy, so you kind of get a sense where he's at. And he says this, as a scientist, um, of all the people we have studied in these regards about subjective well-being, happiness, he says that um, the happy people, that is to say all the happy people, 100% um, had healthy relationships. They didn't necessarily have huge numbers because it's not the quantity, it's the quality that matters. Mm-hmm. You need only one or two that have reality to them. Mm-hmm. So just on that level, and, and it is the single most uh, reliable and solid piece of evidence for our happiness um, from these psychologists is that if you want to be happy, have healthy relationships. It's a kind of, uh, this is a bottom line, if you like. And as you said, it's 100%, so there's, there's no exceptions. As a scientist, that's extraordinary, because most scientists say, well, you know, the probability was, da, 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 but he doesn't say no. He, absolutely, there's no question about it. So I suppose the other angle on that, I don't know, we call it psychology or, or other kind of therapy stuff, um, is, uh, and we may get into this later, I don't know, um, over the last 50 years, 60 years, um, one theory, if you like, one principle, it's called attachment theory, stands out more than anything else. And it's simply saying this, in the debate between nature and nurture, uh, determining who we are, nature, of course, is really important, and we'll probably come to that later as well. Uh, but nurture is also important and what's really really important for our relationships is what happens in the first few months and years of life and that can go well and that can go badly wrong and as you said in the first few months and years of life growing up as a child into well right through to to, to adulthood there's always things that can go wrong um you say um on page 127 of the book it appears that the capacity to relate to other people is hardwired into our brains and that such relating is the heart of human flourishing. Relationships are primarily a function of the right brain with its emphasis on implicit, unconscious, non-verbal processes. Emotions are essential to the development and nurture of all healthy relationships. And you didn't say that is an incredibly radical statement. Can you just unpack that for us and why that is so countercultural and so unexpected? Well, it's a very big statement, isn't it, to say... Number one, because it's, it's actually more than one statement, isn't it? Um, that uh, the capacity to relate to other people is hardwired into our brains. We'll just stick with that for a minute. Um, 
It's a little bit like I've just said this guy, Edina, Ed another quote, he says... There's our happiness doctor. We've got a happiness guru and that's our happiness doctor. doctor. There you go. <laughs> but definitely read his stuff. Um, because another quote of him is, he says, it appears, that very statement, it appears that being ability, uh, the, the ability to relate to other people is indeed hardwired. So it's kind of virtually a quote from him on that. In other words, from all his research and plenty of other people as well, it's very clear that we are born, and this is the point, we are born with the capacity to relate to it. Not just the capacity, but the need to. And that's not simply some assertion. It's it's carried out, or all the research that's carried out shows that very, very clearly. Yeah, I think they showed that with studies with newborn babies, and it would be very unethical to do now, but in terms of just nursing them, but if the the mothers or, or the nurses who were nursing them uh, did no communication or interaction with them, those babies would would literally die. Mm, we saw that when communism fell in Romania, didn't we? And they went into all those orphanages and these babies, children, were in a terrible state. Why? Because they didn't have the affection and the care and the touch, you know, operates on all these levels in those early stages of life. And I guess that takes on into the next bit that we know from our experience that when we are loved and accepted and treated with love and, and affection and respect, especially from those who bring us up in the first place, that has a profound effect. Of course, the opposite is true as well. And that's what this attachment theory is talking about. And so we tend to think, I think, of, of emotions being very uh, subjective, very vague, very ephemeral, very um, unreliable. And yet, it, it, what you're saying is emotions are essential to the development and nurture of all human relationships and presumably to society and cultures and countries and our world. Again, that's a very strong statement, isn't it? To say that, um, well, again, there's two subsections to it. One is emotions. We can talk about that in a minute. Um, but then this other thing about what is called here the implicit, unconscious, nonverbal processes, that needs a little bit unpacking, mm. doesn't yes, it? What yeah. are we talking about there? Yeah, what does that mean there? Well, um, in simple layman's language, I yeah, think. There's a very erudite and interesting guy. His name is Alan Shaw. He's one of these researchers at the forefront of this. Thing. He, he puts it this way. He said this just a few years ago in one of his writings. He said, the, uh, we are living in an emotional and relational revolution, which is a strong statement. What he meant by that was that over the last 60 years plus, um, there have been different ways of under, the scientists have understood how the brain works and how our relationships work. One is called behaviorism, and many of us will know about cognitive behavioral um, treatment, which basically says that all this in, inner stuff is irrelevant. It's only how we react to outside stimuli, like dogs salivating, all that kind of stuff. So behaviorism, which is still quite strong, gave um, gave way to or then came the so that was the behavioral revolution okay so that's saying that basically we just react according to whatever stimulus comes at us and so we, we're like sort of machines you you press at one point and you, you do a and b will definitely happen but, but we're much more complicated than that yeah well that, that's a but it but that's what it's saying that that what we are born with is not nearly so important as how we react to the outside the cognitive re- um, revolution which is about thoughts not about feelings but thoughts and memories and so on um, that came next some years later and that said well it's what we think that matters so that is internal isn't it but it's very it's cognitive it's analyzing thoughts and the rest of it cognitive behavioral therapy 
And at that point, and in many circles, even up to this point, the idea of emotions playing a part in the fundamentals of how we work it's a bit touchy-feely, isn't it? In fact, this guy Skinner, who started off the behaviorist stuff or was a key player in it, he said that emotions are beyond the scope of research. They're so vague and vague yeah. and difficult, difficult to, to pin down. You can't, indeed, you can't easily grasp it with your cognitive mind uh, because it turns out that it's a very different part of the brain that functions uh, as far as emotions, feelings are concerned, as opposed to thoughts and cognitive function are concerned. We've had a previous discussion, haven't we, about this left brain, right brain, and just, just in simple terms, just to unpack that because how different they are and, and how that, that, that relates to this. Well, that, what I've just been saying leads on to that, really. And it turns out, it turns out that um, the feelings that we feel in large measure are a consequence of, are processed in the right-hand side of our brain. That's the right hemisphere of our cerebral um, hemisphere. It's the kind of big bit of uh, brain that you see. That's on the right side. On the left side is where our cognitive functions are. And you say, well... I didn't Cognitive being thinking functions, yes. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's a bit odd. Um, but, you know, it would take too long to explain the history of it. But ever since the 60s or so, it's very clear, it's become very clear that the different sides of our brain operate and perceive and function in totally different ways. And the person who researched this got a Nobel Prize for it, so you kind of get the sense of where it's coming from. And it, again, it turns out that the way in which, the long and the short of it is that the left hemisphere, the left side of our brain, is all about control. And how do we control the environment around us? Well, we certainly control with our hands. And it turns out that the, uh, we all grasp, both physically and metaphorically, with our left brains. That's our right hand. Even if we're left-handed, we grasp with our right hand. So there's something about the left side of our brain that is all about control, whereas the right side of our brain is about connection. Right. Okay. Now, we all experience in relationships wanting to be connected to others. And yet when we get close connected to others, and we're both married and we know this as well, that you also then want to be separate as well. You want to reassert your identity. And, you know, and in popular culture, there are songs and phrases like, I can't live without you, and then I can't live with you either. What's going on there? There's this sense of wanting to be, you know, yes, we know relationships are good and healthy for us, and, we, and you've explained that to us in, in, a, in a lot of detail. And yet we all know that if we get too close to somebody, part of us wants to sort of shrink back as well. Well, it's, it's a universal finding, and I've never yet found any human being who doesn't fit into this category, that it's as if uh, there are two forces, call them what you like, um, within us. One, on the one hand, we want and need to be ourselves as individuals. I need to know where I end, not just physically, but in every way, and where you begin, because otherwise you're not other than me. And how do I connect or how do I relate to somebody who is just me? Yeah, and we talk about that, I think, talk about enmeshed relationships where, where those boundaries are lost. Exactly. And so, so it's really, really important. That begins instantly to kick in in toddlerhood. <laughs> and it develops again in teenage. That's where, interesting, I'll just throw this little comment in, that's where the left brain begins to assert itself. And so this separate... Um, boundaried individual personality and personhood is vital 
And uh, without it, we wouldn't know who we are. We wouldn't have any sense of identity. But at the same time, we, we don't just want to be ourselves on some desert island somewhere. We are very social beings and we can't really live. That's the point. We can't live without people. And uh, we have strong, deep longings. And it's all to do with the things that we've hinted at already, attachment and, and, and so on, because we are built that way. That is the way we're made. Yeah. And so we, we need and want... It's very interesting. Here's just an example of it. Um, last year, there were a number of bombings, weren't there? Terrorist outrages. And I remember writing uh, part of the book about relationships, this bit, just a couple of weeks after the Manchester bomb happened. And what was striking in that, as with so many other situations, is that when we experience such horrible things and threats and so on, uh, what do we do? We don't, most of us, we don't go and find a hold on our own. We want and need to be with others. Indeed, we need to be in physical contact. And you see people hugging and the rest of it. That's entirely normal response. And that, that's because we aren't just individuals on our own. We are part of a whole uh, community. That's, that's why it's so important. So we have this strong desire to connect with people. Um, you say, and just building on that, because this whole issue about we wanting to connect, but also wanting to be separate and different, you say on page 133, anyone who has achieved lasting happiness and contentment has acquired the capacity to spend time both alone and with others without a sense of insecurity and inadequacy. And psychologists talk about this in terms of a word called differentiation, which when I first heard it, I thought, wow, it's actually very powerful because it's the ability to disagree with someone and still stay in relationship. That is incredibly powerful. I mean, how different would our world be if we could learn to do that um, as societies and let alone as, as individuals and as communities? The ability that I can say, okay, I disagree with you on this, but I will still stay in, in relationship with you. Um, sounds wonderful. Sounds hugely commendable, but not easy. Do you want to unpack that for us and, and help us how we can find a pathway to that? Well, this word differentiation or self-differentiation is, is really a key word, I think. And one of the um, pioneers of this was a psychiatrist called Murray Bowen. He developed a whole uh, stream of uh, family systems, therapy and so on. He said these kind of things, bearing in mind these two opposite but fundamental forces to be myself, to be separate, have my own uh, identity and individuality, but at the same time to still stay connected in a healthy way with other people, that is part of the human condition, that we struggle with that, isn't it? But it's deeply rooted in us. He said this, um, that on the one hand, we need to be clear about who we are, that is to define yourself, self-differentiation, and yet at the same time to stay in touch with others, to take responsibility for yourself, but to be responsive to others, to maintain your own integrity without intruding on that of others, etc., etc. So it, it's it's kind of like the perfect scenario that that describes someone who's able to be comfortable in their own skin secure, able to be themselves without apology, um, and just able to live a life that is centered and differentiated, it's clear, but in such a way that they don't cut off, they don't isolate themselves. And often we do that of insecurity, don't we? Yes. A lot of this yes. is down to and, that. and maybe our culture at times um, encourages that, you know, I'm a self-made man or woman, I, I've done this all by myself, I can, 
uh, I don't need anybody. I, I don't need relationships. I can just get by in, in, in the world by myself. Yeah, uh, autonomy. Now, in one sense, autonomy is a good thing because we need to be able to be on one level self-reliant and not just dependent on other people. But usually <laughs> in our society, because of the way things tend to uh, veer, that becomes a kind of independency, even to the point of I am and there is no other kind of thing in my world, be yourself and all the rest of it. And so often what we struggle with is not the self bit, although that can often become quite insecure. Uh, it's actually relating to others. But the, here's the rub, that we can only relate to others, and that's the point that Bowen and others are making, we can only re relate to others healthily when we've learned to live in our own skin healthily because we have nothing to relate to we have nothing to um to be strong with and so when i get angry and frustrated with other people it's it may well be an issue about something of myself that i'm actually not happy about um maybe there's something in somebody else that reminds me of my own weaknesses and inadequacies and so i react in an, in an angry or aggressive way because i see myself in the other person it's, it's quite a deep thought really well the therapists of whom i am not one um, but I've ha had plenty of conversations with them. They they say a lot about this from Freud onwards, don't they? Whether it's transference or projection and so on. The technical terms are not the important the point. The point is the degree to which we are secure and go, going back to attachment, that we have become securely attached in our early years. To that degree, we're much more likely to develop as secure, healthy, balanced adults who are then able to relate to others. But these two forces are at work constantly and we tend to veer one way or the other. Okay, um, just coming, we're going to come to a close shortly, but just bring this together, you, you, you talk about in the book of our psychologists have determined that 40% of our happiness is determined by our choices. And we talked about how relationships are so intrinsic and basic to being human and how we struggle to live with, you know, to, to live in healthy relationship with people in terms of this uh, getting close and being separate. What would, let's try and in a sense really, you know, to somebody listening out there who's struggling maybe in some relationship somewhere and they say to themselves, I can never be happy again. You know, this person's let me down. This person's hurt me. Maybe there's been a grief. Maybe they've done something which they find hard to forgive. Um, how would you respond? Again, there's lots of dimensions to that, aren't there? But um, again, one of the things that these, these experts tell us, whether psychologists or therapists so on, is they, they talk about self-talk, don't they? And there, <laughs> there is inside us a constant... Narr narrative commentary going on isn't there happens to be in the left brain and often that is um it's not necessarily accurately representing reality internal or out, out, outwardly but it's the narrative yeah, so it's an internal dialogue where we're telling ourselves a story about what's going on and making sense of what is, what's happening but it's all going inside our heads yeah and often that arises from our experience in childhood of course and whether it's a critical parent or a teacher or somebody it's lodged there and we're often experience that kind of thing here's the thing though we can talk about the problem to the cows come home but understanding it is part of the answer but here's something that i think has really be, been helpful and certainly helped me in the last few years one is this thing about 40 percent and the other thing is um what's the other thing 
is about, yes, the neuro, n- neuroscience. Let me I'll just say that so that I can remember what they are. The 40% one is um, one of these uh, experts, psychologists, has, uh, looking at all the different research, has, has come to the conclusion that um, part of our the way we are, our disposition and our happiness, if you like, is down to our genetics. Um, I won't tell you what that is right now because we can save it for another time. Um, part of it is down to our circumstances, but also part of it is down to our own free choices. And the giveaway on that is that's 40%, so they discovered. So actually, notwithstanding the genetic and circumstantial thing, apart from that there is the possibility <laughs> and the likelihood if you pursue it that actually my choices will make a difference including my internal um, choices and the point about that is the other thing I'm going to mention that just in the last 10-15 years they've shown these neuroscientists that they're actually uh, cells in our brain they call them mirror neurons that, um, that are able to um, pick up what other people are doing and my own emotional um, state as well and such is the impact not just of external factors but my own choices my own thought choices that if I continue to say and think and act in a particular direction it will change my brain it's that way around and therefore as somebody put it this way a neuroscientist what said you can do your own brain surgery without any knives or anything but by um by changing the patterns of your habits externally and especially internally over a period, all right, takes a period of time, month, two months, whatever. But if you did the same thing every day, um, whatever it was to say or do the same thing, it would become fixed in your brain and would actually change your brain. So someone's saying that, you know, this relationship has really disappointed me in whatever way and I'll never be happy again. What you're saying is that you have you still have a lot of control even though it may not make sense to you at the moment even though it may be very traumatic and people go through terrible things and people do do terrible things to each other um that there is still hope um if we come to a close i mean you talked about the brain research we've talked about your book about lasting happiness and we're going to i think cover this more in, in in the final podcast but from a spiritual perspective as well the power to forgive, the power to, to move on. How? What would you say on that? <laughs> well, um, forgiveness is one of those things, it's again one of those paradoxes, isn't it? It seems like the most natural thing if somebody's hurt you, especially they've hurt me badly, um, to hold on to that. In fact, it's uh, just our natural response, isn't it? The paradox, though... Oh, and, is, and even think of ways to, to, to hurt them back again. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, either to, to cut the off completely from them, pretend they don't exist, or to try and get them back kind of thing. But the paradox is that the more we hold on to those um, attitudes and thoughts and feelings, even unconsciously, the more we become the prisoner of them, the other person might have died. Yeah. They might not be here. Yeah, I, I had a phrase that is not forgiving, is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to, 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 yeah. to, to die, as it were. Yeah, exactly. And that's the bitter irony of it this person who hurt you 30 years ago may not may not be around anymore or um they may not feel any sense of responsibility perhaps they even abused you um and caused you great pain 
Um, but if you were to go back to them and, and talk to them about it, they might say, and of course, sometimes it does happen. Um, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't feel any. That. So what do you do then? And um, it turns out, again, from all the research, but again, from our own experience, perhaps one of the most difficult things we can ever do is to actually choose to forgive. And it just doesn't seem the the right thing to do but it turns out that those people who do come to the point of forgiving and choosing uh, a, a pathway to let go even though it seems everything inside them are crying out against it are the people it turns out um, that live happier healthier lives as a result that's the kind of headline on it yes anyway. and so it's talking from a sort of spiritual biblical christian perspective as well it's understanding how much God has forgiven me, that gives me the power then to forgive others. Yeah, exactly. Well, perhaps we'll come into this a little bit more, but it's, um, I think it's one of those, some of the most profound things that they found out in recent research, simply fill out and confirm the convictions that, uh, for example, Christians and the Bible have been saying for hundreds, if not thousands of years, that um, that though it's most one of the most difficult things to do, by placing oneself in a place of forgiving and receiving, giving and receiving forgiveness, because it's all of a piece, makes me that much more open to that which is healthy and positive, not just in my life, but in the universal. And of course, the, the, um, the Christian understanding that is that's what God is like. He's a person. Yes, and that expands it. And I like what you said at the end there, because it's not just when I'm just thinking about the fact that I've been hurt, then I go into the victim state. But when I also realize that I also need forgiveness myself, and ultimately that's with God, then the power begins to release to, as it were, let go of um, what I'm holding on to and, and my victimhood, because realizing that I've, as it were, been the perpetrator, the aggressor towards God. And any final, any final comments? No, nope, that's fine. Thank you so much. We, we, we're doing a real marathon here, but thank you so much um, for talking to us about healthy relationships. And we keep mentioning the book. It's called Lasting Happiness in Search of Deeper Meaning and Fulfillment. And obviously we unpack that. Well, Andy unpacks that a lot more there. So thank you very much. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, you can get all the show notes for this episode from drsunil.com. And could you do us a favour? Head over to iTunes to rate the programme. This is by far the best way to get this content into the hands of those who need it most. Also, do you think about who you could pass details of the podcast on to? Don't forget to check out the blog for more great content. That's drsunil.com, helping you to make sense of life in a challenging and complex world. Until next time, goodbye for now.